give you these eyes to see other people as he sees them. He gave you our mouth to speak to others as he speaks to us. He gave us these hands to comfort others, to heal others as he has comforted and healed us. He's given us this body to lay flat before him in humility. He's, he's given us everything we need and every tool, practical, and tangible and intangible, to honor him in word and in deed. And he's so worthy. I love him so much. Don't you love him? I mean, take inventory this morning of where you are in relationship to him. Well, I want to welcome those who are here for the very first time and welcome those who are uh, uh, at home. Uh, so we've had our share of sicknesses this week. I'm kind of glad we didn't meet in person last week. We have a lot of people that are on the mend. Some have COVID, uh, but there's others who have beyond the quarantine period, so that's good. We also have a lot of people I know who uh, can't get out of their secondary roads, so God bless you. Hope you went to Ingalls. And uh, we have some people that are just kind of uh, getting by. We need to be praying for the congregation, for sure. No problem. Uh, I also want to welcome those who are visiting for the very first time and tell you that we have a gift for you at the back of the sanctuary as you exit. Glad you're here. I'd love to let you know what's going on in the life of this very special church with these very special people in this very special place. Uh, ushers, if you would come forward. Uh, next week, we have our, I don't know what's called, I don't know what we call it. I think it's a congregational business meeting immediately following the service. We were supposed to be a week or two ago, and we had to change it. So we're going to give a financial report. So it's open to anybody who wants to come, uh, whether you're uh, a member or not. Come on. Uh, let you know what's going on in life of this church and what's happened financially over the last three years. I would call it basically a miracle. It's the way I look at it. But uh, nonetheless, we need to share that information next week. So just plan on 15, 20 minutes after the service. Stick around and be both inspired and informed. On the subject of giving, let's pray. I, I don't quite know how you do it. I don't really need to know, Lord. I'm the last person needs to know, but I just know that you're faithful to this congregation. We sow the word and we lift up Jesus and we honor you and we work hard. You seem to meet us right there and pour out a blessing upon us. There's not room enough to contain. You give us the opportunity to help people locally, regionally, and around the world. And it really is something. This little mountain church is moving mountains of impossibility in areas no one thought we would ever partner with. We're right there in the center of your heart and your will. Not, not only here, but around the world. We thank you for that. Continue, if you would, please, to bless this congregation, the work of our hands. Provide opportunity, provide commission, provide salary, provide increase in salary, provide whatever's necessary for us, for our families, and for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. And let us share generously in that, for you love a cheerful giver. And you're pretty excited about grouchy ones, too, and I appreciate that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning as you give.
All right, let's turn in your Bibles, if you would. Thank you, Maddie. To Acts chapter 9. I'm going to take a look at that in a few minutes. I want to talk to you, as I did last week via the internet, I want to talk to you about friends. Friends. Have you heard yourself say in recent weeks, days, months, I wish I had more friends. I don't have enough friends. Anybody said that? You don't, don't raise your hand. Okay. Okay, that one person. Uh, I need some more friends, you know, or... Why don't I, no, okay, so some people have plenty of friends. All right. Um, I need different kinds of friends. Now, that is true. I think we have a need for people in our life to fulfill different roles at different times. So, okay, friends. Um, how about this? I wish my spouse, get the metal in here, was more of a friend. Okay? Uh, maybe you could say to yourself, I wish God was to me more of a friend. I feel too much like a servant. All right. Friendships. Bible's full of friendships. Friendships are a reality, and we all need them. And last week, I talked to you from the text in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, about this, uh, this woman who was widowed, and he had two sons, and she was up to her eyeballs in debt. She was about to lose her two sons for her sons had maybe, maybe had to pay off the debt by working and leave her. Now she's all alone. She's got nobody. So the prophet Elijah says to her, well, what do you have in your house there? What do you got? Like, what do you have? Basically, she said, I, I have a little bit of oil and what I visualize as being the creamer where you pour your coffee, like a pint of oil. That's, what a, that's about all I got. And he says, all right, we'll work with that. So go out everywhere you possibly can and gather empty vessels so that we can fill those vessels off, up with oil, with your little creamer full, and then we're going to sell the oil, pay off your debt, and you can live off the rest. He didn't tell her that, but that's what his, he has in mind. That's what God has in mind. But notice, she only has as many vessels as she has friends. I mean, her enemies aren't standing at the door wanting to give her anything. She only has as many vessels as she has friends. And when, when, she, when she runs out of friends, she runs out of vessels, all various sizes, the, the oil stops flowing. Said another way, when, when emptiness is over, so too is the flow. There's a huge life lesson there for us who follow Christ. Empty thyself from time to time. Make room for the things of God and for the Spirit of God in your life. Emptiness allows the flow to continue, fullness doesn't. Soon as everything she had was full, the oil stopped flowing. Don't be full of yourself. Don't be full of idols. Don't be full of worry. Don't be full of fear. Don't be full of jealousy. Don't be full of envy. Don't be full of gluttony. Don't be full. Be empty. By the way, I'm warning you, we're getting ready for a fast. news to come. So friends are important, okay? Now, I want to talk to you real briefly about friendships and the role of the church and culture, and I want to talk to you about seven mountains of culture, all right? These seven mountains of culture, if not healthy, will lead to an absence of friendship, the multiplication of enemies, the increase of divisiveness, polarity, 
and the reminder that a house divided cannot stand. What are the seven mountains of seven mountains of culture, seven institutions, seven ways of looking at life in this world, in a culture, in a nation, that each have an individual role, responsibility, and meet a vital need. The first is family. Obviously, that's an institution we have to preserve, especially as believers. We have certain ways we go about being a family. The second, of course, is the church. We have to have a healthy family, we have to have healthy churches, we have to have an education. The institution of education has to be spot on to build the future generations, to build our children. We have to educate properly family, church, education, government. God instituted government, Romans chapter 13, to do certain things. The government needs to be on top of its game as it, as it is instituted by God. Family, church, education, government, media. The media hacks actually has to be um, not a source of confusion, but a source of information. Arts and entertainment in the marketplace. See, where does divisiveness come into these different institutions? If you took inventory of our particular culture here right now and looked at these institutions, it might cause you a bit of alarm. I'd be alarmed if it didn't cause you alarm. Family, the divorce rate the prevalence of fatherlessness in our culture, and the erosion of authority. It's a blight on our society. Church. Churches are messing with doctrine, omitting doctrine, creating new doctrine. They're encouraging confusion. We have, a, we have one of the most confused cultures that I'm aware of, that I've ever studied, that I've ever been a part of. There's a lot of confusion, and God is not the author of that confusion. And in the church, too, there is the erosion of the authority, the authority of God and the authority of the Word of God, and the authority of those who deliver it and serve family church education. We are rewriting and even maybe distorting history from time to time. We don't exemplify or teach how to learn and how to talk with one another in such a way that it is beneficial, mutually beneficial, that there's a mutually beneficial understanding, a mutually beneficial respect, a mutually beneficial uh, agreement on what it is we, we do agree on. We have to have more critical thought in the world today to be able to analyze things objectively with reason, with logic, with the mind of Christ. This is so absent, and it's causing a lot of friendships to die. It's causing a lot of families to die on the vine. Government, one nation, under God. Oh. I believe in a strong military. I do. I, I think a strong military is, is very important in this world. But you know what? The last thing the devil would want to happen to the United States of America, the last thing that darkness wants is for this nation to be attacked by an enemy beyond ourselves. To be attacked by an enemy beyond ourselves right now would be the worst thing that could happen to the devil's eyes. Why is that? It would give us a common enemy. It would give us a rally point. It would give us a, a unilateral agreement that we're going to defend ourselves. This is the last thing the darkness wants for this country. We're already at war with ourselves. Don't interrupt anybody while they're in the state of destruction, right? So divisiveness, we're costing ourselves lasting mutual respect and we're costing ourselves friendships. Media. Subjectivity versus objectivity. 
arts and entertainment. Sometimes the media is arts and entertainment parading as journalism, but they're not. There's confusion in these areas and it's, it's hurting all of us. And last we see arts and entertainment and marketplace. There is a polarization of thought, of philosophy, which is in and of itself not bad, but it's not being handled correctly. So I say all this to say we live in a soup right now. We swim in a cultural pool of animosity and polarization and divisiveness and vitriol. Now, that has to affect us on some level. It has to. It has to affect us on some level. But we're called to do something far above that. We're actually supposed far above that. We're supposed to be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of reconciliation. We're supposed to be people who can look at something objectively, not subjectively. We're, looking, we're supposed to be people who reason, give a reason for what we believe, 1 Peter 3 and 50. We're supposed to be top-notch, on-the-ball thinkers who believe and believers who think. We're supposed to have dignity and integrity. We're supposed to make more of a difference in this world than one vote more than one vote. We're supposed to be a force, a movement, an abiding presence on the earth that affects everything around us. Friendships are part of that. Where are you in your friendships? The Bible's clear on how to destroy something, divide and conquer. Take Adam and separate him from Eve, get them apart long enough that when they come back together, the unduly influence one another for the negative. Divide and conquer. Elijah is most defeated when he's alone, picked off from everyone else. When the brook dries up, he has nothing to eat, and he's in wallowing in his own depression. Loneliness and aloneness are the, are the things that, what the devil wants more than anything else is to take those of influence and pick them off from the 99, get them scared, get them lonely, get them thinking differently, and destroy them. A house divided cannot stand. Now, this isn't the only time in history we've had this issue. Enter Saul of Tarsus, one of the most educated Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, a man who was swearing out murderous threats. Basically, in modern-day terms, we would call this man a terrorist. And I mean that, a terrorist. He has the authority and the and the permission to go about swearing out murderous threats and imprisoning people at will from village to village to village. He's parading with religious garb on, but this man is a terrorist. I want to read you the first 19 verses of uh, chapter 9. Just visualize what's going on and think about how there are parallels between this actually today and what we see in the Bible. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who believed in the way, to the way, or belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to, to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a, little, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, let's focus on verse 10 through 12. Saul had to be, I don't even know, this can't even be a stretch of any shape. This, this man had to be confused. I mean, he spent his whole entire life learning a certain ideology, a certain practice, a certain philosophy. Uh, it was of, of the highest importance in his mind. It was religion. It was God. There was nothing more valuable, more, more necessary. He, he felt called to do it. He felt like he was doing what he was called to do. He could justify what he was doing by his calling. And all of a sudden, he's got to be utterly confused. Now, this... This is not unlike our culture. I would say there is a peak of confusion, a pinnacle of, of confusion right now in so many different aspects of our culture. Confusion abounds. Now, we know that God, scripturally, is not the author of that confusion, but there is a great deal of confusion. There's confusion about our identity. There's confusion about our personhood. There's, there's confusion about any and every political issue you want to talk about, there is confusion everywhere. There's confusion about our own sexuality, about who, who, what is a man, what is a woman. There's confusion everywhere. And Saul was deeply confused. Now, he should be. He's gone from thinking one particular way to abruptly finding out that there possibly could be an abruptly different way, and he was wrong the whole entire time. That would be confusing. To live your whole entire life thinking one thing and justifying it to the point you would swear out murderous threats and, and actually imprison people, that's fairly convinced of your belief right there, only to find that perhaps he was wrong. That is confusion. Saul was told to wait. I almost feel as though in America in 2022, I have to define this word wait. <laughs> it's like, does anybody know what it means? It actually, it actually means that you don't get what you want when you want it. This is a, the concept I don't even, have you ever heard that concept before? I don't know. It, it means that you're not going to get what you want when you want it. And it also means that you're not going to get you what you want when you think you should get it, or as fast as you should get it. 
The, the person who's actually mature in Christ, who's, who's a follower of Christ, who's a student of the word, who's a person of prayer, who, who's out there really trying to, to do in, in word and in deed what, what, what God really wants them to do, that person should know what waiting is. Because that person knows that waiting actually leads to a renewing of your strength. Let me say it another way. If you're burnt to a crisp, fried out right now, burnt out, it's probably because you're moving too fast, you're too busy, and you do not know what the definition of wait is. You see, the answer to your prayer is either yes, no, or not yet, not now. Wait. Wait. This is becoming really serious. Wait for him was three days. Three days for us is an eternity. Wait. Dinner's never done fast enough. Fast food is never fast enough. Internet's never fast enough. The only thing we're fast at is interrupting one another. We're really quick on that one. We're not fat. We're, we're, we're just not interested in waiting. Now, this man is solely confused, and he's told to wait. God's pretty much into waiting. Wait upon the Lord. Listen, if you're, if you're one of these people that is, is, is very reactionary, you're not going to like this. Your reactionary impulsivity in your walk with Christ will lead you to problems. It will be problematic in your relationships and in your friendships. This, this idea now that, that, okay, I feel like I heard from the Lord or I read something, I'm going to go do it. And Ananias didn't even do that. He, the, Lord to, the Lord told him directly to go lay hands on this man, and he questioned it. He said, let me confirm this. Let me get a, let me get a better idea. This is actually what you're talking about here. Wait, 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 wait. I want to encourage you to slow, if you're quick to judgment, quick to speak, you're not slow to anger, wait. Learn to wait. I would take that word wait. If you're too, if you're shallow in your walk, you're not learning what you feel like you should be learning in life, if you've plateaued some in your walk with Christ, I, I, I just want to share this word with you. Wait, wait, wait. Slow down. If you're young in your faith, wait. Learn to wait. Find somebody who can teach you how to wait and wait. I buried a woman in Fort Myers uh, 16 months or so ago. And her, her way of living and what she shared with her husband was so, so profound. Give, she would tell him, she said, give the Lord time to work. Wait. That's maturity. This is a woman who had stage four pancreatic cancer. The one thing she didn't have was time, and the one thing she promoted the most was, would you give the Lord time to work? The first thing God does in the midst of Saul's confusion is tell him to wait. Saul was a butt kicker. He ain't waiting for nobody. He ain't waiting for anyone's timetable. He is on his own mission. His mission will take place at his time when he wants it because he's large and in charge. And the first thing that man needed to hear in his confusion was, wait. Said another way, if you're racing through life, 
making quick, heavy decisions, living impulsively. Here's the thing, my friend. You might be a little confused. I think there's a relationship between those two things. Frenetic impulsivity in a person's walk and confusion. First thing he said was confused. Second thing he said, wait. And now look at this. Saul crying out loud. He was blind. He was blind. He couldn't see. What is that about? What is the implication here? Rush your life. Go go do your thing. Don't take a lot of time to pray about stuff. Just boom, 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 boom. That's my personality. I'm a visionary. I'm supposed to do this. No, no. Slow down. Wait. Or you're going to end up blind. What do you mean? Deceived. You can't see what's right in front of your face. Look at this culture. We are the most frenetic, high-paced culture ever lived on the face of the earth. And it's only being amped up faster and faster. We got to have 5G. 4G won't get it. 3G was obsolete. 2G, are you kidding me? We got to have 5G. 5G is supposed to bring down an airplane. What are we going to do when we get 6G? I got to have something done faster and faster and faster. I think we're confused. I think our confusion is causing us blindness. Do we actually see what we're doing to our friendships? Every cell phone conversation, I gotta get off as soon as I possibly can. Or, or if you live in the mountains, you'll relate to this. Hey, I can't talk, I gotta go, I'm gonna lose you in about 30 feet. Boom, gone. About to lose you. Now, how many of you in the house of God will raise your hand and tell someone you haven't used that excuse because you didn't want to talk to them? <laughs> coming, up, coming up on a bend. Here I am. I'm going to lose. How many have done that? Oh, never mind. Blind. Oh. Not being able to see something and not being able to see it for what it really is, that's blindness. To be deceived. You want to cook something up in a really effective way of destroying somebody's walk? Confuse them. Rush them. And they'll end up seeing things that aren't even there. End up living their life defending something that's not even right. Totally deceived. That's all. These two boys on the road to Emmaus, the day of the resurrection, were, they couldn't see Christ. He's standing next to them. What is that about? Read that, Luke 24. Come up with your own answer. Is it possible we're seeing things that aren't there or seeing them differently than they actually are? Or is it possible that others are doing the same? Well, it couldn't be us. It must be them. Somebody out there has got to be confused, got to be rushed. And certainly got to be blind. Saul, what did he need? Saul needed a fellow believer. Now, Saul hasn't been a believer for very long at all. I mean, he's just been wrecked. But now he actually has come to faith in Christ. He's, he's actually talked with Christ, heard Christ, and now he's realizing he's been persecuting him first, not his people, him first. So let's say Saul's a believer. What's the first thing that happens when Ananias shows up? He says, Brother Saul. What? Ananias is calling 
a terrorist brother. Years ago, I mean years ago, I used to work in a car dealership. I was a finance manager, and I was the closer. Bring them to me. I'll close the deal. Bring them to me. I sold Pontiacs and Mazdas, and I was the closer. And there was a guy there who was a Baptist preacher, and he left the ministry for some reason and became a car salesman. This guy would sell 21, 22 cars a week, soft-spoken, gentle soul, sweet man. It's almost as though every church he's ever been, the congregation would just come up there and buy a car from him. And you know what he called me? Now, I was living the most nastiest life you can imagine. Call me Brother Gary. He never called me Gary. He called me Brother Gary. Brother Gary, Brother Gary, Brother Gary. And I always thought, why is that guy calling me brother? It was, a, it was an act of faith. He's probably a guy who was praying for me. Well, sure he was. Call him brother. I'm going to call him what he isn't by faith that one day he will be. And that man ended up, ended up getting me a job after I came to the Lord where I needed to be, doing what I needed to do to take care of my family. Brother, Jerry Wallace called me Brother Gary. No one called me Brother Gary. Nobody called me Brother Gary but Jerry Wallace. Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you are, were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I get concerned sometimes because uh, we had this reputation years ago as being this country club church. I thought, what is, what is that? That's ridiculous. Gosh, we need to shed that nonsense. I remember the country club people used to sit by club. Everybody remember that? Yeah, you could look over there, oh, Highland Falls, and there's okay. And I, and I started learning where people were going. I go, oh my gosh, people are sitting by club. It was unbelievable when I first got there. They were sitting by club, and then you could tell who had a who had like a 12:15 tea time. Four guys would get up at the same time and leave. I was like, oh my gosh. Where did the where did the, uh, the guy who lives here all year sit? In between the clubs, or he didn't come here. Where'd the plumber sit, or the contract, uh, the, the, the framer? Where'd the plumber sit? Where'd the electrician sit? It was crazy. Anyway, what was I talking about? These people came here with this, there was this thing about this church, and it was so unfair, that Certain, you, you fellowship with certain people, but you didn't with others. The people who didn't go to church here in the, in the wintertime, they, they could be members. There was this weirdness. And it was not brother so-and-so and brother so-and-so. It wasn't sister-sister. And I know that sounds a little religious and archaic, but you get the point. We weren't accepting of one another. The first thing Ananias does when sent by God to someone who's a terrorist, he calls him a brother. He's like, you have full acceptance here. I accept you where you are. Now, I get concerned sometimes when there's some edgy folk come up in this, in this sanctuary. There's some people that live some, and I work with them, and I know them, and I, I'm friends with them. They've had it rough. High mileage people. High mileage, you know what I mean? Listen, if you come to Christ, 
whether it was this week, today, or it's only last year, your old friends back outside of Christ cannot help you. They can't. Saul can't go to his Rolodex and start calling every Pharisee and every educated guy that was in his seminary class for answers to his problem because they don't have it. He's now in an area that no one can help him but someone who's been there, Ananias. You can't come to Christ, be a businessman or a businesswoman, go back and talk with these guys that you work with who don't know Christ and think that somehow or another they're going to be able to help you with this. They, you, you have no idea how much they have no idea because just weeks earlier, you had no idea. No, he needs a fellow believer. This needs to be a church and is a church and continue to be a church where some of you come to Christ People come to Christ and someone will come alongside of them and say, hey, brother, let me help you. You need some direction that you'll not find elsewhere. And what will happen is some, if someone doesn't do that, if that's not formalized, if that's not arranged in some way, shape, or form, this poor guy is going to just wither on the vine and end up leaving because his friends won't be able to help him. He needs someone in the body who can help him. So Ananias understands brotherhood, and acceptance, and he understands how important it is to give someone a word from the Lord. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again. He brings something that the Lord told him to do and gives it to him. When you can, when you can speak on behalf of the Lord, not just yourself, you're gonna have far greater results in your, in your friendships and your influence. So he has brotherhood, he has acceptance, he has a word from the Lord, and he has healing. I went through 13 weeks of a course on healing with uh, people in this church. Built a little team. We still talk. We still fellowship. We still pray for each other. I'm cultivating a, uh, a mentality and a practice of faith and healing among this team. So this team might be a little bit 11 and moves through the whole batch. Uh, I, they gravitate towards taking prayer requests. You know, all right, give me a prayer request. I'll pray for that person's healing. I said, well, that's great and everything, but everyone else is doing that. You're on a healing team. I don't want you just doing that. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to get up in the morning, prepare yourself in your heart and mind to be receptive to a possible reality that, like Ananias, you might be told to go pray for someone. I don't care if it's on the, in the bakery at Ingalls if it's at a hair cuttery, if it's at uh, a, a quarry, I don't care. If you feel led, if you're open and sensitive enough to the Lord that you get up and have your devotion, not just for your own sake, for the sake of someone else, that you're a vessel to be given to someone else to be given to the building of the kingdom. When you wake up in the morning and say, I'm that vessel, if there's an opportunity to do that, I'm that person. I'm that available person. I don't have it all figured out, but I am a brother, I'm a sister, I'm not confused. I've been in the, in the kingdom of God, I know what happens. I'm going to go pray for somebody if I feel led to do it. And if I have the feeling that God sent me to do it, I'm going to tell them that's a word from the Lord. That's different than what I see happening in 99.9% .9 of the churches, but I see it happening 100% of the time in the Bible. 
brother, I know you might be confused. And you may not be able to see. You might even be deceived. You know, there were people in the New Testament that were healed that weren't even believers. There were people in the New Testament that were healed that didn't even know the name of who healed them. Didn't even know who he was. Had to see him a couple days later to figure out who he was, to have an introduction. This is Christianity. This is what this nation needs. It's what this mountain needs. The people we would otherwise live so fast and, and, and label as a terrorist or someone who doesn't agree with me or someone who lives totally different than me, to, to call them like right out of the gate, I accept you where you're at. I love you where you are. I don't agree with what you're doing. But I am not confused about this idea that God loves you too. And I feel led to, heal, to, to pray for you for God to heal you. That's notable. That's what I want to see. He places his hands on Saul. I don't know. Maybe this is a stretch. It probably is. It wouldn't be all that different a few years back going down to Guantanamo Bay and praying for some total enemy that wants to kill you. If God told you to do it and you did it, it'd be about the same as what I'm looking at here. This guy was bad news. And then look, for several days, they ministered to that man. He had done nothing to earn their respect. He had done nothing, nothing, nothing but tried to destroy them. He had done nothing but persecute the Lord himself and those people. They did, he did everything. He was worthy of retribution. He was worthy of imprisonment. He was worthy of judgment. And Ananias had called a brother, accepted him, laid hands on him. He was healed. And then, is that that enough? Hang around a few days. We'll give you some food so you can regain your strength, get your bearings, figure out what's going on. This event was so monumental to this man, Saul, he had to go out in the desert of Arabia for three years to process it. Does that tell you right then and there that this man found a friend, found a brother, found acceptance, found actually healing, sight again, to process what happened to him? He found all of that in a span of a few days, and he took him three years to process it. That was a radical move to make a friend. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends. Once you understand the playing field of who we're supposed to make friends of, you realize that nobody's outside the limit. Everyone's in there. Everyone qualifies. Once you go that far, then anyone can be your friend. You can, now, they may not want to be your friend, but you can befriend anyone as a Christian. If you can befriend this guy, you can befriend anyone. You can accept anyone. Not what they do, accept them. There's a difference. Don't get so high and mighty righteous, self-righteous, that you, you can't be a friend with them because they do X, Y, Z. Or they don't do X, Y, Z. Your blindness is keeping you from seeing the plank in your own eye. Friends, there isn't 
Too many churches in this nation today being presented with this kind of sermon. There's not. Some may say pray for them. Nobody says befriend them. Nobody says seek them out. Nobody says share a word from the Lord. Nobody says lay hands on them. Except the Bible. What if? People stopped swearing threats out against those in public service and actually tried to befriend them. What kind of radical thought is that? It's the word of God. I guess when you preach it, it causes one to pause, at least we hope. When I came up here, I was told, and rightly so, that I'd be cut off from all of my peers in ministry. And I realized that. I, I knew that. It's true. It's tough to maintain long-distance relationships. I was told you're going to come up here, it's going to be a non-denominational church, or you're not going to have a denomination, you're not going to have a group of cohorts or ministers that you hobnob with. You're not going to have that iron sharpening iron kind of thing. You're going to have to make it on your own. You're going to have to, do, you're going to, have to really cultivate that. You're going to have to be intentional about that. And they were right. But I know this much, and I don't know much. There's a new believer in this church. And there's a new person in this church. The thing that makes me most proud are those who will reach out and embrace them, and walk with them, call them, help disciple them. Because they know that that person might have just a tiny, tiny bit of oil, but it'll never multiply and increase if they don't have friends to give them empty vessels. There are those in this church who are in need of empty vessels. And when a congregation drifts for one reason or another, for perspectives on this or that, whether we agree with it or not, when we drift, when we gravitate online, you know, for every person sitting here today, there's three or four people online watching this service from the very same church. When the congregation drifts, and that goes on long enough, and the friendships dissolve, and the iron isn't there to sharpen one another, and it's not brother this or sister that, and life gets more and more confusing, and we rush more and more, we end up not seeing things we saw before. We end up not doing things we did before. We end up not sharing things we shared before. I'm just telling you early in the process, because that's what's going to happen. It is the picking off, the dividing, and the conquering. And it's nobody's fault but the devil. And it's nobody's responsibility to undo it but the churches. And there it is. New believers, make friends. Accentuate what you have. Accentuate what you have in common and be the hands and feet of Christ, though persecuted. My hope is, I, I, I figure I'm going to go all out in appropriate ways for the next 20 years trying to build the kingdom of God. 
And if I'm not persecuted more than I already am, I'm going to be disappointed. That sounds like a stupid thing to say, but it's true. If I'm not causing more resistance to the kingdom of God, if I'm not persecuted more than I already am, if I'm not rushed more than I am, if, I'm not try, uh, if there aren't attempts to deceive me more than there is, I wonder if I'm actually engaging in the building of the kingdom. If I'm left alone to my own devices, everything's kind of easy, I'd be concerned. I really would. And I would pass that on to you as well. You should have difficulty praying against the darkness. You should have opposition. You shouldn't always have opposition. You shouldn't exaggerate opposition, but it should be there. There should be resistance. If you and I are weapons as a church, some of you have no idea how intricately involved we are among persecuted peoples, of peoples that are being locked up, denied, some killed, some beaten. This church has been placed smack dab in the middle of all of that. You got to be on your game to come to this church. You, you, you got to be a praying person. This isn't for the light of heart. Let's close in prayer. Help us stop rushing if we are. Unwrite confusion, for you're not the author of it. Put in us a patience that is a gift of the Spirit, that we may wait upon you. Let us be accepting even of those who oppose us, but not accepting of that which is contrary to your word. Let us be agents of reconciliation. Let us focus on what we have, what we have in common as we engage those, Lord, who are perishing. And let us be that accepting brother or sister who can help those who have no other counsel than those in the seat of mockers, agnostics, atheists, wayward souls. This we need, fresh wind of the Spirit. This we need for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's ponder these things. Ponder these things while we're here now.